Hello, readers and listeners. You are back with the book boys, George and Steve. <laughs> the, um, li- the library card lads. The only podcast with a different name every episode. Um, we're not called the book boys, um, but we may as well be because we're talking about books again. Um, <laughs> uh, yeah, we we had a little chat and we decided, you know, after... Uh, a couple of episodes back we have my our impassioned heated debate steve's meltdown uh, steve's meltdown about why am i being forced to read so many big old books with tons of pages <laughs> descriptions of fields and why are these people wasting my time slaving over their masterpieces and i'm sat in the bath having to read them <laughs> um we, uh, you know, we discuss whether things should be shorter, stuff that's too bulky, stuff that's too long. But I feel, George, potentially people got a little bit the wrong end of the stick about me. Uh, oh, that's what my worry might save your reputation, isn't it? Yeah, my, my neurotic thought about that podcast was thinking people may be now, now thinking I'm the Philistine of the two. And I just, I just only want a hundred page books that I can just burn through and anything along. I just think, Oh, forget that. Chuck that away. Mm. Um, I'm not willing to invest in a thing. Uh, whereas, you know, I'm a man who loves the Sopranos. That's eight seasons, hour episode each. Uh, and I also love several big old novels, uh, which is our topic today is our, our favorite doorstop Big old novels, uh, 500 pages plus was our brief. Um, because I I tend to, I'm not inherently against anything being long. It's just things that I feel outstay their welcome or I feel are unnecessarily long. So, um, yeah, yeah, we're, we're, gonna we're going to about- champ- champion some books that kind of justify the, the bigger length, right? Lots of things get baggy for the sake of it, but these we hope should be... Uh, be as economical as possible and still justify being that length best of both yeah yeah and um you know the 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 big old the big old books tend to be meaty tend to take on quite grand you know they tend to be quite ambitious usually uh quite epic um so yeah how did you find this george was this easy for you to find big old books you love or do you do you tend to notice any pattern where you you like big or short books more is it is it purely content driven for you uh the pattern is actually very clear for me this is this is where the old book boy nerd allegations can be thrown back at us i i'm sure i've mentioned before i track everything i read in a a big old excel spreadsheet um so i've been kind of working to try and read 100 books a year and that's been that's been an ongoing thing now for for about eight eight years now, so yeah, yeah, life, mate. <laughs> I've I've ratcheted up quite a lot of titles, and what is kind of damning is that in sort of January, February, there's you know there's a lot of meaty texts, and then as as I get to kind of July, and I'm only thirty five books in, you can see I I I get the frighteners put on me, and everything I read from then on is about one hundred and fifty pages. So there is a like a clear pattern of. The bigger books I read tend to be when I'm uh, feeling kind of free and unencumbered, and that's that was something I think we talked about in the the podcast we did about was either goals or habits, whatever it was. My my goal this year has been to um, I still want to read as much as always, but I'm not kind of working to that arbitrary a hundred number. So I feel a lot freer this year actually to read big books and not worry that, oh well, if I read a eight hundred page book I won't be able to reach this magic number, which has served me really well in kind of upping what I've read, but it does kind of bring about stresses as the year goes on in a really sort of stupid and self-indulgent way. So there is a very clear pattern for me. But I Going through the, the many books I've read, they are fairly few and far between books over this length. Um, some of them are, I would say, quite obvious ones. So I've tried to steer clear of those and um, hopefully I've pulled out, of, of the limited number of huge books I've read, I hope I've pulled out some quite interesting ones. Um, yeah, I definitely share your... I, I definitely have this strange... I, I look, when, when we decided on this topic, I actually realised a wave of... Uh, looking through my read and to read list, I had this wave of sort of guilt of being like, wow, I, 
there's quite a few big books I still have intended to get through for, you know, several years now they've been on like, oh, I should read that at some point. And uh, I've, I've ticked off a few, but actually there's quite a few I haven't. So this is kind of just looking through the list has kind of actually invigorated me to go and uh, go and actually read a few more, which we'll talk about at the end. But uh, I'm they hoping... Do, they're just way heavy on the two, like literally on the two read pile, right? It's just uh, when a, a thousand thousand page tomes kind of there it does take that much more energy to pick up Um, yeah and there is some psychological thing where like you're saying you feel like it's one book in substitute for three you could have during that time and and that's kind of a really just a silly psychological bias but it does it does make you think well am i ready to make this the book i read for the next you know however long it's going to take um So yeah, but uh, I find them- that's quite a useful. I don't know if it's trick is the right word, but um, if you have a fairly big to read pile, uh, and it, it kind of it's been accumulating for you know months or years, the mood that you were in when you bought that book eight months ago is not always going to be present, right? And sometimes a book on your shelf can just look like why, why the hell did I buy that that looks boring I never want to touch it or it's got a, yeah it's a second hand and it's got a kind of boring old cover I find for me that I'll be reading something completely unrelated or in, like in contemporary or like yeah current affairs and I'll suddenly get that oh that topic's kind of fresh in my mind and I kind of use that to motivate me to pull off the next book on the shelf so that tends to be quite a good way to, for me to g myself up to read a you know a thousand page doorstop if I've found a topic currently that's suddenly interesting and I've kind of renewed my interest in what that topic is it's the best time to capitalize on taking that taking that big book on rather than I just need to get through this thousand word book because thousand page book because it it's important you know is make sure you're in the mood for it otherwise it, it will become a bit of an albatross yeah, I can see that. I uh, I recently uh, was reading about the history of England and that sort of, and, and just learning more about it made me think, oh, I want to go and read some big English historical novels now. Yeah, now's the time to cash it in because I bet, you know, you're going to New York. When you're in New York, you're going to want to read Philip Roth or something. So yeah, now right. now's the time to do it. Um, yeah, so uh, so we've got, we got some preamble there. Let's... Uh, Let's dive into our picks. You go first, Steve. Okay. Uh, I don't have to start. Do you want me to start like favourite first or do you want me to just go round? No, I don't want you to start with your favourite first. Okay. <laughs> Great. Uh, okay. I'm going to go first of all for one that is kind of a, it's not an excessively enormous as far as big books go, but it's in, when you think of big books, George, people think of, of course, the great Russians. Mm. Uh, you've got your Tolstoy. You've got other people. <laughs> uh, you've got Dostoevsky. Um, you know, you think of the big, the Bulgakov or however you pronounce it. Um, the guy who wrote Master of Margarita. You think of the great Russians. And Dostoevsky, I have had a kind of, some bits I've loved, some bits I've hated, but I think the one that is, in the entry point that is worth it if you haven't touched Dostoevsky, I think it has to be Crime and Punishment. Um, have you read that one? I haven't, no. The only novels of his I've read have been the, the really short ones, so interesting that you say that's the best place to start. Yeah, um, I think Crime and Punishment is the one, because a lot of people talk about the Brothers Karamazov, and I actually found it a bit of a disappointment, um, and that's probably about 800-ish pages, Um and I just, I just wasn't very gripped. I kind of fell out of it, kind of became a slog to get through. But Crime and Punishment, once you're actually in, it's quite, it's quite sort of pacey and exciting. And even though it, it has all the hallmarks of Russian literature, it's got these sort of big, almost, you know, it's big, sweeping, lots of characters. Uh, and it kind of has these long philosophical discussions like many of them sort of unrealistically engaging constant mm. philosophical dialogue about morality and big ideas. But Crime and Punishment is like a big idea novel. It's the archetypal kind of, it's it's a theme, the theme of, you know, is there any cosmic justice in the world? And, you know, if one commits a crime, 
And obviously there's the, the constant wrestling of whether you'll be divinely punished or not. But if you're not going to be divinely punished, it's almost a case of if you committed the terrible thing and got away with it, is there any form of actual justice for you? Mm. Uh, and it's about the main character kind of does this terrible grisly murder early on, almost for no real reason, really. And struggles with enormous guilt throughout the novel for it and may or may not get caught and there's people who are suspicious and he's kind of constantly kind of going kind of mad wrestling with his own morality over this crime he's committed and whether he can put it away and it's kind of one of those novels whose influence has spread massively through many films have covered this exact issue mm -hmm. um, you know, you can even think of there's there's Woody Allen has made films about three or four times that have done this exact topic of yeah. someone commits a murder and has anxious anxiety, you know, is anxious about it constantly after. And it's, uh, and you know, things like Talented Mr. Ripley, uh, where you know, Tom Ripley is this kind of conniving person, and it's whether he can push aside and get away with what he's done, his terrible act. Um, mm. So yeah, it's it's kind of one of those. It's to me, it's like one of the archetypes of sort of grand, ambitious Russian literature that's about a distinct idea, a very kind of philosophical idea about morality, about its existence, whether or whether or not God is important in that. And it's a uh, yeah, it's a very fine novel, George. My uh, my girlfriend just read Brothers Karamazov uh, very recently, and. Like you, I think she was somewhat disappointed, but primarily because it felt so much a product of serialization and therefore it was super repetitive and you felt like you were being, she said she felt like she was being given the same kind of content over and over again without actually much development as a result of it. Was Is that apparent in Crime and Punishment as well? I did not feel that as much. And maybe Crime Punishment is a bit shorter, maybe a couple hundred pages shorter than that. So maybe it, it has less. Uh, and Crime Punishment's a bit more focused, whereas Brothers Karamazov has sort of more individual stories to deal with within it and things like that. So, yeah, I just found Crime Punishment, it was just more engaging the whole way through. Um, mm, maybe okay. the plot's a bit Maybe the plot's a bit more tightly focused. And yeah. It's just, yeah. Um, yeah. So I. Uh, so yeah. If you wanna, if you wanna plug into the great Russians, uh, it's a great place to start. Great place to start for sure. Um, I'm I'm going to reply, Steve, with a with a pick of my own, and I have picked, um, I've picked a novel by the chap that dare I say got us started on this whole topic. Uh, the Norwegian writer Carl Ovet Nausgaard. With oh. I, th I think I'm pronouncing that correctly, Steve. Um, we talked about him on our, our podcast about is, is media and culture too long and asking too much of its audience for its length. And he's famous for his big kind of autobiographical uh, piece, or what piece is six novels long. Um, you know, that's, that's what he's known for. He's, he's known for these huge books that um, recount a lot of kind of, yeah, the mundane and the quotidian and all this. Um, so the novel I've picked here is, um, I would say, massively under, under read in the kind of English translated world of his books. So uh, his My Struggle series is the long, the long works that he's known for. The book I've picked is called A Time for Everything. I think it's also published under the title A Time for Every Purpose Under Heaven. Um, and it is so very different from his My Struggle books. It's there are some telltale signs that this is the same writer and the, the kind of way he constructs the more mundane passages. But the plot of this novel is about um, the, the, the ramifications of what would happen if angels were subject to evolution in the same way that, that man has been through history. Uh, he was he was asked in Norway to provide a new Norwegian translation of the Old Testament, I think. And it's so clear that these kind of issues were ripe in his mind. And he, he mixes up, up kind of biblical texts and biblical stories, say the Noah story. Um, but he, he just adds these very dark and very different spins and takes on them. Um, and then, 
while this is going on, there's also a narrative of set in kind of Renaissance Italy about a man who has written the history of angels and how angels have been selected walking among people and how, how they've developed and come to live. And it, it just couldn't be further from the, I woke up today, had a cup of coffee, wrote some more pages, went to the shop, bought some potatoes, which is what his, my struggle books feel a lot more like. So, um, a large novel, 518 pages, so just kind of squeaks over our definition. But um, yeah, if you want, if you want to kind of see what all of his creative abilities look like outside of his autofiction, then this is it's about the only other place to start. Really, there's nothing else published in English if that's the language you're reading in by him. But um, yeah, a really, a really interesting book. Um, very good. And I bet very few people have touched Nausgaard outside of his autobiographical stuff. So yeah. that's a lovely little niche pick there. It never, it just never gets mentioned when there's any writing about him. It's always just about his, yeah, his sort of every, everyday stuff. And it's, it's such an interesting change of pace that I think it, it fills in a bit more biography in a way that the, the daily stuff just doesn't quite touch on. And does it stand up if you just read it not knowing who he was? Yeah, ab- it? absolutely. It, it definitely helps knowing who he is and kind of seeing it as a piece set against. But it, it wrestles with some really interesting ideas. And if you find kind of Renaissance history or the kind of the place of biblical stories in human development, whether that's with personal religious interest or, or the opposite of this, it's a really fascinating kind of narrative area to explore. Um, lovely. Well, do you want me to jump to another one? I'd love it. Um, can I jump to my favourite now? Please, yeah. yeah. <laughs> well, uh, okay. The second choice will be my favourite big book and possibly my favourite novel ever written. Um, at least top three, but it, it regularly is number one for me. And it's a text that some people instinctively are should we say timid or skeptical of? Mm-hmm. And it is, of course, a great masterpiece by James Joyce, Ulysses. Go uh, big or go home, right? Go big or go home. Uh, Ulysses is a book, some have called the greatest book of the 20th century. Uh, it was written right at the beginning of the 20th century. So lasted a long time. Um, and it's, uh, you know, a lot of people will have obviously heard of it. Um, many people will have avoided it. I'm uh, one of those people. I've never, never heard of it. Uh, it is basically at its core a story of one day in Dublin in the life of a man called Leopold Bloom, who's uh, sort of an advertising salesman, and uh, and his friend Stephen Daedalus, who's sort of more of a brooding intellectual. Um, and it's kind of their two, you know, I guess they're the two principles and it recounts various events that ha- tra- happen to them as they track across Dublin. Um, some of them fairly, you know, they go, they go to a funeral, they go to a bar, Stephen goes to the library. Um, they have a kind of, se- uh, Leopold has a kind of sexual encounter on the beach. It's kind of all these just different, you know, fairly mundane things that happen to them, but it goes every chapter is distinctly very different where it sometimes you'll be in a completely different character's head. Sometimes you'll jump, you know, each character kind of has their own voice. Their narration is different. Leopold's narration is much more simple. Stephen is much more eloquent. And so he has much more long verbose or philosophical digressions in his, and you have all these different people. It's a huge amount of characters that you kind of jump all around and and sometimes i think the novel the novel's kind of a key text of the modernist movement and people obviously have mixed feelings about that because they they associate james joyce with oh he just messed around with language and didn't make sense i think you could make you know you can make that frustrating argument with something like finnegan's wake which is much further experimental than ulysses but i think when I read Ulysses for the first time, I was actually surprised at how it, you know, there are definitely benefits to having like, you know, going and having a study guide with it or something. But really you're not, uh, if, if you, if you read a lot and if you're, you know, into literature, it's not, it's not hard to follow what, exa- what is happening. 
it's just some sometimes it gets you know sometimes it gets a little more playful or a little more abstract with the language or the in you know trying to describe someone's inner monologue in sort of very realistic fashion things like that but it has flights of fancy but ultimately it's actually quite grounded and quite i was quite surprised at how much there was just great insight in there funny it's very funny there's loads of kind of you know just clever plays on language funny dialogue funny thoughts people have and uh yeah it's it's one of those ones that's hard to describe other than people experiencing it and having you know having an opinion on it as they read it but i found i i just wanted to keep going because i was like this keeps sort of changing all the time and you know it's kind of enjoyable unlocking the mysteries of it because it feels like there's so much there to unpack and so many things you're not getting as well and i'm sure it must um, also after having read it unlock your understanding of so many other things that follow from it right it's just such a great um toolbox to have in your reading experience to like you said like you say with the crime and punishment being able to recognize so many plots derived from it ulysses obviously has its fingerprints across so many pieces of art that have stemmed since yeah uh, i think that's right and it and it makes so many illusions as well that you're like you know it makes lines from shakespeare find their way in there or puns on lines of shakespeare or even just references to certain greek poets or whatever it is it's like it's kind of got so much aware of the whole history of literature in it it's got biblical illusions it's got you know the whole novel itself is said to well well it's I think James Joyce wrote it this way, but it was to, it has an allegory to Homer's Odyssey in it where each chapter will be based on one of the events that Odysseus went through in the Odyssey. And it, so there's a chapter based on the Cyclops where they, in a bar, in the bar, they meet a one-eyed man and have a fight with him and things like right. that. So there's these kind of, and there's the, like the sirens, which is a part where Leopold Bloom is attracted to these girls on the beach and uh, does something very dirty. Um, but uh, yeah, so they, yeah, but but it's actually the least. In some ways, it's not the interesting. Like you don't that context is completely not necessary to the novel, and is almost that's almost like the gimmick part of it, really. That doesn't need to be unpacked that much. It's just it's there, but it's kind of. I think Nabokov said this in his lecture about it as well, where he just kind of disregards that part of it, the, the Odyssey illusion, because he said that's not really what the the fascinating things it's doing are. But um, yeah, no, it's a, you know, it's a, it's a great portrait of a city, portrait of a human life, all the kind of richness that goes on in a single human mind in a single day. It's kind of like, I feel like, wow, that's what novels can do that a medium, another medium couldn't do this. That's yeah. the thing I feel the most about it. And uh, probably a shorter book couldn't do either, right? It's, I'm, I'm guessing it's a book that uses its length as effectively as possible. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Um, so, uh, so yeah, I think I think it's a masterpiece. Um, may not always be the thing you want to reach for for a thumping plot, <laughs> but yeah, I, I I think it's a beautiful book. Lovely, very good. Um, you're just coming out with some some heavy hitters, aren't you? Yeah, I'm, I'm, when it's big old stuff, I'm I'm straight to the classics. Whereas I'm I'm dredging through the the obscurity, Stephen. I'm going to continue with that. I'm going to pull out a book that again I. Well, I, I don't think too many people have read, but I would, I would champion um, and encourage people to to investigate, and certainly just to investigate this author. It's the book is called Accordion Crimes, and it's by the novelist Annie Pru, who who also wrote The Shipping News um, and Brokeback Mountain, a short story of hers. From I'm super eager to I'm super eager to dive into Annie Pru, but I haven't yet. Uh, yeah, so Accordion Crimes was the first of hers that I read. I read it during my degree, actually, and it's it's a fairly chunky book. It's like 544 pages in hardback, so a, a fair old size. And it it's not the most riveting kind of blurb or pitch, but it's about the history of an accordion from its construction to its, I suppose, its demise um, as a kind of means to explore the immigrant journey in the U.S., through multiple different families and different groups and different peoples, um, as the well, she's, she's stolen my idea. <laughs> yeah, yeah, absolutely. Um, but she she just delivers it incredibly well. Writes really, sl- 
in the way that I think on an on another podcast we talked about Martin Amos and something that I find Martin Amos is really good at but it also jars is his character names he just comes up with some very obscure and off the wall character names and Annie Prue does the same and they often really just define you know exactly what you're going to get um with the character just by the name she gives them and by kind of exploring the different immigrant groups in in the US she just gets to play with a, a much broader range of language and different backgrounds and things but it's it's a really a really nice big book to read because it's they're not short stories but you get these like linked but contained sections so you never feel like you're you're flogging your way through a massive and meandering section each of them does feel contained so it's it's quite a nice a nice way to uh, to tackle a larger book and uh yeah it just gave me a really really great insight into her very unique voice i would say and um she she is also a real master of the short story so a writer that can do kind of long and shorter form fiction but um yeah maybe not maybe not her best book but an, an excellent longer novel and one i would encourage you to investigate very good um, could you give me the name one more time as per, because I forget the names. Yeah, it's Accordion Crimes. Accordion Crimes. Um, how many pages? Five, four, four. Oh, good number. Just squeaking over there. Um, uh, all right. Well, I've got another, George, and it's it's not going to be as obvious Ooh, as the okay. other. Um but it is a it is a well known novel, I guess, in in literary circles, um, and it is the very fine, very historically detailed book, "The Name of the Rose." Oh, wow. lo- lovely! By Mr. Umberto Eco, which is arguably the best name on this list, I think. Uh, <laughs> yeah, just being called Umberto itself it's strong, isn't it? Gives you a kind of stately uh authority um yeah uh the name of the rose you've read this haven't you i have yeah yeah it's um you know it's one of those books i haven't read in quite a while so i don't i don't have the full plot description mapped out in my mind but basically this this fellow called i think it's william of baskerville uh is asked to come to this uh he's he's like a friar and he's got a kind of novice like monk with him, I guess, uh, traveling with him. And they go to this monastery in Italy to kind of be a, he's like a really renowned, he's super knowledgeable, really Mm -hmm. smart and comes to, uh, attend this dispute over theology basically. And there's, then there's, there's a death in the monastery, someone suspected, and he starts using his deductive abilities to sort of stay and try and, you know, figure out what's gone on and who the murderer is and it's kind of that's the that's a sort of backdrop and within that though it's really an exploration of ideas and kind of you know it's it's set in 1327 so it's obviously you know these are height of sort of um height of sort of very quite oppressive religious times and it's kind of the tension between him sort of trying to you know, he's exploring these ideas and some of them are very dangerous. And there's all these, you know, something I, as I guess someone who I haven't really got into the weeds of theology, George, but there's actually quite interesting debates in it that I've never really sort of concerned myself with where they're having these kind of debates as to whether Christ really was poor or not, whether he, whether he how he felt about, you know, how he felt about money and whether the Pope's this and just different aspects of kind of inner workings of theology that would create these great sort of, well, if this is true, then it means we should be like this. And they're kind of having these inner debates all within it. And there's also kind of this underlying skepticism to the whole novel really, where, you know, William starts to kind of doubt even certain fundamentals of his beliefs and, obviously it's extremely dangerous to do so where he is and it starts kind of he's trying to be questioning him trying to kind of be very free thinking questioning in that way but it's constantly coming under the fact that it could be extremely threatening to him if people think he's doubting too much um 
So it's just, yeah, it's just a very, it, it feels very real. It feels very of the time, feels painstakingly researched. Um, I would yeah, say it's it, a book that when you're reading it, you go, well, even if I'm not enjoying it or don't follow the plot, the author is a genius. Yeah, yeah. I, I think mean, that's right. Swathes of like Latin, right? There's just pages of, oh, that that was a whole section in Latin. I I didn't understand any of it, but fair play. Um, but it all adds to this kind of authenticity of the book, where it feels absolutely. like a real. Yeah, it's like it feels like the these fingerprints of knowledge are all over it, and you feel like, wow, there's so much I didn't know. Basically, mm. um, yeah. So I, I I just thought it was very interesting and gripping and and kind of just as a novel about a lot of ideas really um, yeah yeah lovely a, a great pick um i'm gonna pep things up a little bit steve and uh we're mm. gonna go from one genius to another we're going to be uh, dredging through the the backwaters of louisiana with mr cormac mccarthy and his longest novel sutry um mm. i'd say a probably a, a lesser read uh, member of his member <laughs> members of weird words have used there. Um, a le- yeah, a lesser read uh, pick of his his texts. Really, I don't think it's yeah, it's it's not explored anywhere near as much as it it should be. It kind of bridges the gap between his early like Appalachian like, Gothic Southern novels and his Borderlands like dark frontier texts, and it, it kind of bridges the gap between the two. Possibly his most comic novel along with child of god which is darker in tone this features a, a wonderfully named character called lester the molester uh who has a, a penchant for watermelons um and yeah it's just a great a great book about a cast of characters and kind of a down and out collection of characters that have just an incredible array of experiences and uh embody a world that yeah is it, it's kind of a, a backwater world, but it's touched by this just absolute master stylist and incredible wielder of the English language in a particularly dark and impressive and uh, particularly American way. And uh, yeah, I, I found it very, very entertaining. And uh, if you're a fan of Cormac McCarthy and haven't investigated this one, please do. And if you're just a fan of very, very well-written American novels, then also investigate this. But um, hard, kind of hard to summarise the plot because there isn't isn't one as much as it just being a, a bit like Ulysses. It's a portrayal of a, a cast of characters over a specific period of time. But yeah, fan, fantastic writing from him as per. Um, that's great. Well, I've read quite a few Cormac McCarthy, but never that one. I believe the uh, great film critic Roger Ebert was a very great champion of that book as well. Oh, amazing! Um, he loved he loved a bit of Sartre. He mentioned it in a review. Um, yeah, um, marvelous. Well, I don't know if to stick with America now or to jump. I've got one. I've got one that's very controversial here. Um, I don't Contro- know if- controversial. Why, Steve? Because it's actually a novella. <laughs> yeah, it just feels really long. <laughs> it's one of the um, Mister Men books. Yeah, no. This is where we get down to ones where I'm kind of not sure which uh, to take. I'm. I'm going to go for. Okay, I'm going to go for one that I think is an odd and controversial pick because I think it's, it's one that I didn't expect to like. And I was actually, I actually read it very quickly and it was much more readable and quick and enjoyable than I thought it would be. Mm -hmm. Um, And it is the Fountainhead by Ayn Rand. (laughs) Oh, now this is this amongst literary circles. There is a real, I mean, I don't know many people who split opinion in quite the way that Ayn Rand does. Um, it's real kind of, you know, there's literary people who will say she can't write. Um, there's people who obviously for, uh, see her as an embodiment of an aggressive, libertarian, capitalistic style of thinking, very individualist. And so you kind of can't, and you can't come to her work without a massive amount of baggage basically if you've read anything about her and it almost seems to 
preform everyone's opinion of her. Now, I don't really read literature in a political way. I'm not really interested that much. It, it, you know, I, I tend to I tend to balk from novels that I feel push too much ideology on me. And and I guess, you know, with with this, that's why I wasn't sure because I'd have just heard all these things of, oh, it's you know, it's just really didactic and it's you know got her mm. own her own politics in there. She, her, her context was she fled from Soviet Russia, became an American and basically completely disavowed and loathed everything to do with communism for the rest of her life. Um, and uh, yeah, so I put, put all that aside. The novel actually is, is actually, I, I actually didn't find it was about that from what I read, I, I can, there's always an individualist undertone in her novels, but this one is kind of about this guy, an architect, uh, uh, an aspiring architect called Howard Rourke. And he's got these other people by him. And I, and I guess everyone in the novel kind of represents different things. And some people are like more about, um, they want to look good. They want status and they want respect and all different things. And Howard Rourke kind of is very much, sticks to his guns the whole time basically and is is extremely he's like a real purist and it's kind of about um you know he'll he'll refuse to do things he's kind of against people being derivative in their architecture he's desperate to do something fresh and new and he refuses to compromise and it's kind of the story of you know what happens if you make that choice never to mm. compromise and and it's kind of a i don't know you you can definitely Look, there's definitely a point of view in there, and in some ways, it's it's a it's an idealistic one. Uh, but it's uh, I just I just found like I'm this is very readable. I'm sort of enjoying the story. Mm. I don't know how much I you know what, whatever her eventual conclusion is. It's like I don't know how much I agree or disagree. But it was it was kind of interesting. It was inspiring, and I was more like actually this would probably appeal to many artistically minded people because actually a lot of it <laughs> there's a lot of talk there about like you know um not basically caving in to a lot of societal pressure to yeah. perform or to be you know to be sort of your individual voice to be sort of smushed out by pressures of commerce and society so in some ways i was reading i, I think her other stuff is maybe more on the sort of political and capitalist side and things like that. But this one I found more to be a novel exploring the idea of individual integrity, basically, and, uh, you know, the value or not value of sticking to that and what that means. So, nice. yeah, I, I, just, I was kind of compelled by it. I don't think the writing is as masterful as James Joyce or something, but, yeah, I was, I was kind of, I think I was expecting something that would be different than it was. Hmm. So That's it was very kind of interesting one. Yeah, kind nice. of surprising. Cool. Um, well, I'm going to reply, Steve, with one where the writing is masterful. Um, just to just to get the old page counts in there, Sutri was 576 pages. The one I'm offering up now is 672. So we are ratcheting things up quite a bit. This book is Wolf Hall by Hilary Mantel. Um, oh, Oh, it's so very good. It's just so wonderfully written. I read it in three sittings. Um, that's how gripped I was by it. Um, it's the the first of a trilogy, the third of which has just been announced and will be published on, I think, the 1st of March 2020. Um, so eagerly awaiting that. But this is definitely the longest of the three. And it's her saga about Thomas Cromwell and his adventures in the course of Henry VIII wheeling and dealing and scheming and his rise from kind of like, I don't know, stable boy sort of East end of London down and out to a uh, kind of key player in, in the most powerful sort of monarchy at the time. So um, she just gets you right in the head of a character that we, we know a lot about historically, but probably personally don't know too much about. She brings him to life in, a, a very impressive way and conjures up an amazing court and amazing characters. And there's so much scheming and manipulating at work often in very kind of, yeah, controlled and subtle ways and like a nod and a wink 
uh, kind of have these amazing ramifications and to express that through just sentences is is a fantastic feat of writing she's she's an ama- amazing author from the i've only of her work i've only read this and the second in the series bring uh, bring up the bodies um she's written uh, a very long novel about the french revolution called a place of greater safety i think that's over a thousand pages um so she's really very skilled in kind of bringing historical periods and worlds to life but um yeah it's just a, a masterfully written piece of historical fiction and if if that is at all your thing then i cannot recommend it highly enough the first two of the trilogy both won the booker prize and i'm nerdily hoping that she makes it a hat trick um yeah i'm i uh, i'm currently basically in the early stages of the first one and already very much enjoying it so um yeah i uh I kind of feel glad I've got two of them to look forward to. I'm very jealous. Yeah. Fabulous. Um, uh, okay. Uh, and that, that genre historical fiction is one that sometimes I find I'm not so interested in reading dramatized, dramatized stuff of real people, but you know, she does it in such a way that's so, I don't know. It feels they they often become quite. I don't know if it's the right word. Gendered, almost right. You get either like uh, Bernard Cornwell, like the Sharp books or the Flashman books, which like I don't know Napoleonic battles for for dads, you know, or you get like right. the other Berlin girl, or kind of like the sexy goings on at court, and they're kind of for a mum on holiday. There's just that the historical fiction tends to branch either of those two directions you know in broad brushstrokes when it's not done particularly well and this is just such a fantastically well-written drawn literary take on um a really important historical topic so uh yeah it's kind of fantastic to see such great subject matter handled in a in a really impressive way um wonderful um shall i do one more yeah please i've got two more so that yeah that'd be lovely um okay i'll uh I, i'll do two honorable mentions um because i can't really i there's another great russian one but maybe you know maybe it's another another similar thing but um uh honorable mention for anna karenina mm. uh by tolstoy which you know i think is is a kind of broad sweeping family saga um just yeah i'm i'm not going to go into too much detail about it but i found it probably my first introduction to big russian novels and just for kind of character insight like insight psychologically and drawing these very distinct characters it's got some of the philosophy in there but it's kind of about flawed people and families and uh you know kind of has tragic elements but it's very yeah, it's just it's just a very well made, well written novel. There's not really a lot to say about it. Yeah. Um, but yeah, yeah, just I see like there why people you know consider Tolstoy a genius there for his sort of insight into people in that novel. Um, and uh, then the other honourable mention was of course Moby Dick, um, which is extremely experimental in that half of it is description of the anatomy of a whale. <laughs> And the other half is this seafaring adventure trying to capture said whale. Um, but I just thought that one was one where you feel like you are reading an author who, it feels like you're reading someone who seems to know everything. And it's like you're reading something that wasn't written by a person. It's like, you know, it's just, it's just like, how would someone have, yeah, how would someone have constructed these sentences and had this kind of detailed knowledge on anything? It was, yeah. it's quite an astonishing feat. Um, the one I'm going to champion, just in the name of... With these lists, George, I like to kind of just have variety. So I'm just going to go for something more contemporary, um, you know, much more relatable than a lot of these classics. Um, and I'm going to go for Jonathan Franzen's book, Freedom. Oh, lovely. Um, I haven't read his other, what people say is his masterpiece, The Corrections. So that was on my list and I, I cut it off for brevity's sake, but The Corrections is absolutely fabulous as well. Yeah, so you know, yeah, Jonathan in many Franzen, ways they are kind of the same book, just written about different people. So um, right. yeah, 
Well, I think freedom's a great one because, you know, similar to the corrections, it's it's a modern family saga. And obviously, you know, it's it's written by Jonathan Franzen, who's kind of this writer that some people love to hate because sometimes he can be a bit of a um a liberal he's seen as a bit of a liberal snob i guess in puts his foot in it doesn't he, when he um, have to. yeah and so uh you know some people find him a bit elitist a bit a bit sort of um up himself i guess but uh you know he does he he writes really well freedom is a, an epic and it's large and it's also like an absolute page turner because mm. once you're hooked and the characters you get so into the saga of this fam this modern family and uh yeah it's it's just kind of feels very real and very you know the drama is real as well and things feel like they have stakes and consequences and it's uh yeah just a very good contemporary it's hard to think of books that have come out in sort of recent years that have been about contemporary life that have had that kind of, you know, gone for that. It's almost old fashioned in its epicness, but it's set in contemporary. Yeah. And, uh, yeah. So it's sort of the great modern family saga, I'd say. So freedom or the correction. <laughs> yeah. Either or flip a coin because you'll be getting a very similar experience, but both experiences will be magical. Uh, have you read purity by him? No, no, I haven't. No, okay, neither have I. Um, but I think I think he's tried to go three for three with big old kind of human interest blockbusters, uh, or blockbusters are big old just big old page turners. Um, but yeah, he's he's certainly the man for the job of of the current crop of writers. Um, I don't know how many more books he's got in him. Really, they must really take it out of him writing books on that scale and sort of size. Yeah, he think, goes for it. Doesn't he tell you, I think he turns his internet off when he's writing. Like he kind of just disconnects for great periods at a time. It's the only yeah, way. He's, he he's very against internet internet yeah. connections in general. Yeah. Um, but purity is kind of about the internet, right? So it's interesting. Um, well, that's a, that's a great pick. Um, I'm going to kind of stick in that sort of space with another one of maybe a slightly slightly older generation, but still of the contemporary great American writer mold and his magnum opus, I would say. It's Don DeLillo's Underworld, 827 weighty pages in hardback. Mm. Um, fantastic. I mean, he's a writer who has a very clear, distinct voice. You know you're reading a Don DeLillo novel from page one, I would say. Uh, everything's kind of grey and uh, there's conspiracies afoot and uh, there's a lot of sort of human disconnection and it's it's not the happiest place to be, but masterfully done. He's sort of considered someone who's very prescient about the kind of trend towards global terrorism and has addressed this throughout his novels, this one. I think the... The uh, the original first edition of it features a kind of looming image of the of the twin towers and uh, sort of yeah presciently uh, pinpointed pinpointed the issues that would would stem from the kind of global geopolitics and those kinds of things. But he st he often starts with quite a small scale event, and this one is a fantastic fantastic example of how he magnifies one specific moment in American history and then sort of looks through the ramifications of that. And I think that, so the opening, I guess it's probably about 80 pages worth has been published as an independent novella as well. I can't remember the specific title of that, but it's about the, the famous moment in baseball that the shot heard around the world. I, I couldn't tell you what specific game it references, but it's kind of this landmark moment in American sporting history. And he, he builds his story up from this just incredibly written and drawn scene about that event. And then spins out through the next 800 pages about a vast array of conspiracies and uh, shady dealings, but he's, a, he's just a kind of master of tone and atmosphere and mood that is very particular to him and is, uh, yeah, is, is masterfully done. He's, uh, he's kind of earned, earned his stripes for sure. So um, yeah, Underworld by Don DeLillo, if, if the kind of dark, <laughs> if darkness is your thing and the kind of, a, a, a grey look at the contemporary world is your thing, then he's the writer for you. Marvellous. Um, well, 
Things have gotten very extensive on my list now. Is that is that your last pick? Steve, I've got one more that's a bit of a cheat, so I'm going to run with it, if that's okay. Um, go on, go for your cheat, mate. You've earned it. Thank you. It's rather than one very long novel, it's 12 volumes that, uh, <laughs> that all follow one consistent thematic story. It is, um, I would say it was the, the best... The best thing I read last year. It's not um, your own autobiography, is it? <laughs> Unfortunately not, no. It is A Dance to the Music of Time by Anthony Poole, spelt Powell, P-O-W-E-L-L. Um, A Dance to the Music of Time. It spans, I, I guess it, it does kind of fit the bill for just long books in of themselves. It's often published in um, four volumes of three of the novellas or three of the novels in each. Each one is about 250 pages long. And uh, they they follow the kind of first half of the last century uh, from when the, his main cast of characters start at a boarding school and then work their way through from kind of 16 years old to 70 years old and take in a, a lot of British history on the way. Many of the characters are... Uh, fictionalized versions of people he was either up at Oxford with or worked with in the publishing world or lived and kind of um, engaged with in literary London in the 30s, 40s, 50s, 60s. He covers the the Second World War, much like Evelyn War does in Sword of Honor, that kind of um, behind-the-scenes take on not quite frontline fighting, but what was happening behind the scenes in the home front during the war um and yeah just a, a fantastic range of books a lot of stuff about being a writer his his main character is a bit of a cipher for himself um but a kind of every man that doesn't have too much detail and it's more about the the kind of experiences that he has he's just a beautiful prose stylist as well um yeah i found them gripping from the start to the finish and they're they're often really highly highly placed on lists of the greatest novels of all time, but they probably should be seen as a collective. So uh, under that kind of um, titling, they sort of fit the bill as being a, a very large novel indeed. So yeah, highly, highly recommended. Wonderful. Um, well, we've covered a lot there. Um, yeah. I, uh, you know, this was just a good, a good selection. I feel like I've got way more to have any sort of, proper coherent list i feel like i need to read about six or seven more of these to kind of uh on my list at the moment one i'm very much enjoying that i sort of barely started at the moment is the count of monte cristo oh very long but very readable and so far i i have a feeling that one's going to squeak in uh when i read it and uh middle march by george Eliot, uh which i'm also very keen to read um, yeah, he, he was a great writer come on now I think I've made that joke three times on this podcast. You have made that joke. Um, George Eliot being a lady, of course. Um, <gasps> spoiler. Um, yeah, so I still think people are going to be so mad that I put uh, an I'm Rand novel in here. You're, you're a pig. <laughs> There's such a strong division there. But, you know, I like to throw a bit of variety people's way. And I think, you know... The good thing about these lists is don't be conventional with them. Give people something they wouldn't have thought of. So, um, yeah, those are plenty to chew on, aren't they? Absolutely. Um, and tell us your lists, guys, because we would really appreciate hearing a few big book recommendations from you. What do you like best from this list? How many of you are never listening again because I mentioned I'm Rand? You know, tell us all your feedback. Steve, uh, I think one of my favourite things is being recommended a book by someone genuinely enthused by the book they're recommending. I love it. Yeah, absolutely. Um, yeah, so... There's, no, there's nothing sexier. <laughs> what are you trying to say? <laughs> um, yeah, so please uh, please send them our way because uh, we'd love to hear what you guys love. Um, all right, let's close her there because this is getting bigger than some of these bloody books. <laughs> Oh, yeah. Well, it's been a blast, Steve. And we'll we'll do it all again soon, won't we? Oh, yeah. There's so much more to come. Um, I'm toddling off to America soon. So I'll, uh, I'll probably speak to you when I'm there. Catch you on the other side, Steve. Thanks, guys. Bye-bye. Bye-bye.